It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. December 26th, 1980. Sergeant Bud Steffens of the United States Air Force stood guard at his post at Woodbridge Air Force Base in Suffolk, England. He had an eerie view tonight as he stared out into the black woods beyond the base. A sudden flash of red appeared over the horizon. An object began a rapid descent toward the trees below. Bud blinked, not believing his eyes. He flicked himself in the face just to make sure he hadn't fallen asleep. Looking more closely, he realized that he hadn't imagined anything. The forest was now dimly glowing. A craft had crashed or landed in the woods. He shook his head in frustration. The holidays were supposed to be a quiet time around the base. But now, now he had to call control and report the sighting of a UFO. Little did he know that before the night was over, this would become the most famous UFO sighting in British history. Are we alone? Have we been alone? Will we be alone? Stories of alien visitation have been ingrained in human history. Alien life may not be confirmed, but our obsession with it can't be ignored. Welcome to Extraterrestrial, a ParCast original. I'm Tim. And I'm Bill. Every Tuesday, we visit the marvelous and strange stories about our encounters with beings from another world. We're aware that some of these tales may seem completely unbelievable. Others may seem all too real. But these stories shed light on human nature, human beliefs, and human psychology. And each story has garnered hundreds, if not millions, of true believers. And for that reason, we think they're worth exploring. Today, we're discussing the Rendlesham Incident, one of the best documented UFO sightings in history. With multiple reliable witnesses, an audio recording from the event, and an official government memo detailing the incident, this may just be the most believable case we've covered yet. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you are listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to ParCast.com slash merch for more information. The Woodbridge Royal Air Force Base is located 80 miles northeast of London in Suffolk, England. In 1980, it was one of the largest NATO bases in the world. Occupied by the American Air Force, it secretly housed 500 nuclear weapons. These were ready to deploy in case of another war in Europe. Not that this was common knowledge at the time. Personnel were 
technically supposed to deny this information. Each member of the base was a dutiful soldier, not asking questions, simply tending to their assigned tasks so as to keep the larger war machine functioning smoothly. This meant that when Sergeant Steffens reported a mysterious aircraft crash out in the forest, he was serious. He knew better than to disrupt base operations over nothing. A member of base security was sent out to investigate. At midnight on December 26th, Sergeant Jim Penniston walked through the cold night air up to East Gate. He had been a member of Air Force security for seven years. This wouldn't be his first false alarm. There were no Air Force planes in the sky right now. The kid was probably just sleeping on the job and confusing his dreams with reality. Penniston was good at his job, though he didn't exactly look the part of a tough military man. He was thin, with pale skin, buzzed blonde hair, and nerdy wireframe glasses. A young man, he was altogether unimposing, but he made up for it with a stern manner. As Penniston arrived at the gate and Steffens let him through, he was alarmed to find that there was clearly more to the report than a man dreaming on the job. Off on the horizon, the dark Woodbridge forest glowed a dull shade of red. There was some sort of fire or something shining through the trees. Penniston joined Steffens in the guard shack, calling Master Sergeant J.D. Chandler. Penniston explained what he saw, and after checking in with a string of officials, Chandler was able to confirm. Heathrow Airport had detected a bogey going down over Woodbridge Forest. Still, it was probably just a civilian plane or a weather balloon or something silly. At least that's what they hoped. Penniston nearly had a heart attack as an Air Force Jeep suddenly drove out of the woods. It was Airman John Burroughs and Ed Kabansig. He'd forgotten that they were on patrol. Burroughs was 20 years old, with a soft voice and a handsome face. Kabansig had dark hair and tan skin. He was a little quiet, but dependable. They had seen the UFO too, and no, they didn't have any better idea of what it was. Wanting to get to the bottom of this, Penniston loaded up in the Jeep and ordered the men to drive him down to the tree line. Steffens had to stay at his post, not that he minded. Bouncing along in the Jeep, Penniston's anxiety grew at the thought of what they might find in the forest. Was this a downed Russian spy plane? Would they encounter enemy troops? Or would they find one of their own dead? As they pulled up to the forest's edge and stopped the car, he decided it would be best to leave Kabanseg there as a radio link. Otherwise, they might not be able to get a signal back to base through the thick forest canopy. Penniston and Burroughs thus proceeded alone, pushing their way through the dense tree line. Within about 50 feet of walking, they could already see something through the trees. It was an impossibly bright light, bluish in nature, and it was coming toward them. Both men hit the dirt as the blue light went whizzing by, over their heads, through the trees, and back into the depths of the forest. It was impossibly fast. Getting back to their feet, they could still see its glow deeper in the woods. Penniston was afraid, but also fascinated. He had heard stories of UFOs before, but he had never believed them. He turned to Burroughs. 
they silently agreed to press on. They traveled another 50 feet or so and felt an electric charge in the air. It was like static electricity that permeated their skin, their clothes, their hair, everything. Peniston was trying to keep his mind from racing with thoughts of visitors from another world. Maybe this was some sort of experimental plane that had crashed. However, instinctually, he already knew this wasn't the case. There was no smell of burning fuel or metal, no sounds of destruction. No plane crash on Earth was scentless and silent. Reaching down to his radio, Peniston attempted to make contact with Kabanseg. Just as they feared, they couldn't make contact. Was this due to atmospheric conditions and the thick forest canopy, or was it something else? The radio sounds eventually died out completely, giving way to a much more chilling sound. Animals all around them seemed to be afraid, panicking. Peniston had never heard anything like this. It was as if the entire forest had come alive to warn them. But they had come this far. They wouldn't go back now. The bluish glow between the trees beckoned them forward. Soon, the light filled their line of sight as they pushed and pushed their way through the trees, emerging out into a forest clearing. Sitting in the center of the forest was a bright white light, unlike anything either man had ever seen. Burroughs suddenly seemed afraid, his eyes big, sweat running down his forehead. Peniston clocked this and nodded to him. He could stay here at the edge of the clearing, but Peniston was going forward. Moving the rest of the way into the clearing, he squinted through the bright light to try and get a better read on the object. The light parted and he realized it was actually many different lights surrounding a metallic vessel of some kind. It looked like a small triangle lying horizontally on stilts. There was a bubble or cockpit protruding from the middle of the triangle. Most aircraft have red and green lights on the wings. This UFO didn't have discernible wings, per se, but it had many lights, white, blue, and red. It was small for a plane, maybe nine feet on each side of the triangle. Strangest of all was the fact that it was utterly silent. There was no engine hum or metal creaking or any of the sounds Peniston associated with aircraft. As a member of the Air Force, he knew what every plane in existence looked, smelled, and sounded like. But he had no idea what this was. He stumbled forward over moss and twigs to get a better look at the object. Cupping his hands to his face to try and block out some of the light, he got his first up-close look at the sides of the craft. It was made of a black material, so smooth, so shiny, that he wasn't even sure it was metal. It was like glass. There were images laser cut into it. Writing of some kind? He couldn't make sense of the characters. Little boxes that looked like castles. Long cylinders with hooks on the end, almost like some kind of giraffe. Perhaps most intriguing of all, there was some sort of triangle with spark shapes coming out of it. Was this an image of the ship itself? He stared into the symbol, time slowing, his vision blurring. Everything was utterly, completely silent. 
without thinking, he reached out and touched the craft. Blinking rapidly, Peniston looked around. Somehow, he was now 30 feet away from the craft, next to Burroughs. How had he ended up here? Suddenly, silently, the craft shot up 200 feet into the air. In the blink of an eye, it was gone. Peniston turned to Burroughs. How were they going to explain this? They both jumped. What was that sound? Then they realized their radios were picking up signals again. Kabanseg was trying to reach them. Up next, Peniston and Burroughs try and explain their encounter to higher-ups at the base. Now back to our story. At 3 a.m. on December 26, 1980, Jim Peniston of Bridgewater Royal Air Force Base in Suffolk, England, encountered an aircraft unlike any he had ever seen. Airman John Burroughs was with him in the woods near the base, and both agreed that the glowing craft moved impossibly fast and impossibly quietly. As they returned to base after a three-hour absence, they found that they couldn't explain where they had been all morning. There were at least 45 minutes that they simply had no memory of. Sitting outside of their shift commander's office, they worried that he would think they were crazy or liars if they told him exactly what happened. Before being summoned inside, they decided to give what they would later refer to as a sanitized version of events. Both wrote statements that stated they saw a mechanical object with red, blue, and white lights. But they wrote that it disappeared before they could get a better look. Rather than acting incredulous at their story, the shift commander leaned in, giving both young men a stern look. He asked them if they had ever heard of Project Blue Book. They had not. He explained that it was an Air Force program with the mission of getting to the bottom of the UFO phenomenon. The only problem? It had been shut down in 1969. In other words, he was saying that the time for UFO stories had passed. He didn't want anything to do with this. The commander wasn't going to sully his reputation with nonsense. Then he scowled and said it would be better if they forget what they saw last night. This was not what Peniston expected to hear. It was one of the strangest things that had ever happened to him. And he was just supposed to drop it? Not likely. He grew suspicious of his shift commander. Why wasn't this being taken seriously? This was one of the most important Air Force bases in NATO's arsenal. Surely mysterious aircraft flying around it warranted further investigation? Apparently not. Both Peniston and Burroughs were sent home for the rest of the day. The next day, Peniston drove home to his private residence. As he went about the mundane activities of life, washing his face, brushing his teeth, taking a shower, he just couldn't shake the beauty and the terror of what he had seen the previous night. Putting on a fresh pair of clothes, he resolved to drive back out to the forest. Returning to the edge of the woods filled him with dread. The narrow trees crisscrossed together as if daring him to come and be entrapped within. This time, the animals were quiet. Undaunted, he pressed on, making his way to the clearing where they had seen the object. At first, he could see nothing unusual. 
It was just twigs, leaves, and grass. But then he saw something on the forest floor. There were circular impressions in the ground. But how could anything have made a mark in the dirt? It was 32 degrees last night. The ground was frozen. Whatever made these was heavy. Removing a tape measure from his truck, Peniston measured the distance between each impression. They were precisely 9.8 feet apart. This was the closest thing to physical proof that he was going to get. Moving quickly to his truck, he withdrew a bucket of plaster and began making molds of each impression. Before long, he had three same-size molds. They actually just looked like blobs of plaster, but to him, they spoke to an incredible reality. Peniston jumped out of his skin as an Air Force jeep pulled up. He relaxed as he saw it was just a couple of his fellow security personnel from the base. They were curious as to what he was doing out here. He said that he just wanted to look around. Both men were doing the same. They heard rumors of something strange out here the night before. Hiding his molds in his truck, he wished them a good afternoon and left for home. Meanwhile, up at the base, a new character was about to enter the fray. Deputy Base Commander Colonel Charles Halt was a skeptical man. At 40 years old, he hadn't gotten to his rank by being prone to flights of fancy. And yet, when he heard that not one but three men reported seeing something strange in the woods the night before, his interest was piqued. While others had thought it was not even worth putting in the blotter, the official record of base events, he demanded that the incident be included. On the night of the 28th, two days after Peniston's sighting, Halt was sitting in the mess hall when a soldier came up to him with an urgent message. The man leaned down and whispered, it's back. Halt immediately knew what he meant. The UFO had reappeared. Taking charge of this second expedition, Halt made sure that his team was equipped. They wouldn't end up like so many UFO witnesses before them, with no evidence to prove what they saw. If there was something to see, they would get pictures, audio recordings, measurements, and readings. They loaded up with radiation detectors, night scopes, personal voice recorders, and portable floodlights. Halt ordered his men to take him to where Peniston had his sighting the night before. They arrived there in minutes, setting up the lights to hit the trees. Only when they went to flip the lights on, the lights just sputtered and died. Beginning to sense that something odd was going on, Halt pulled out his voice recorder and began to narrate the night's events. As some of the men went back for replacement floodlights, Sergeant Monroe Nevels took radiation readings. The readings were faint, but it did appear that there was some trace radiation in the area. But then, when moving the readers over the impressions in the ground, readings increased. Halt's instincts once again told him that something was just a little strange about all this. It didn't help that floodlight after floodlight kept malfunctioning. It was cold, dark, and nothing was working right. Then, some of the men noticed yet another odd detail. Looking at the trees surrounding the clearing, it seemed that many had strange marks on them. It was as if they had been burned and some of the branches had been knocked off. Halt looked at the burn marks intently. 
What was going on in these woods? He stared and stared into the woods, confused, unsettled, and slowly being brought around from his skepticism. Even so, he refused assistance when Burroughs called over the radio. He didn't want the witnesses from a few days ago to bias the investigation. If they already thought this was the work of a UFO, as he had heard, them being on site would only create hysteria. The men fired up their night scopes next, pointing them at the marks on the trees and the impressions on the ground to see if they found any kind of an interesting visual. One man looked as if he'd seen a ghost. He turned to halt saying, hey, Colonel, come look at this. This is not what Halt wanted to hear. Events were growing stranger and stranger. Taking the scope from the soldier, he looked through it at the tree markings. Astonished, he found that the markings were giving off heat signatures. They showed up white on the scopes, proving that these marks were, in fact, radiation burns. Halt, unable to fully keep his composure, exclaimed, this is eerie. His dread only grew as everyone became quiet and listened to the forest around them. The local wildlife had suddenly grown very loud and very agitated. It was then that a man spoke up from across the clearing. A light, I can see a light. Halt raced over to the soldier. He questioned him asking, a light? You saw a light? The soldier pointed out between the trees. The whole group stared forward into the blackness, the trees whipping around them, the animals clicking and wailing. Suddenly, a red light flew through the trees ahead. Halt gestured to his men, douse your lights, douse your lights. There's something very, very strange. They all complied, watching with apprehension as the red light danced through the trees ahead. Some commented on how it seemed like pieces were falling off of it as if it were shedding molten lava. Others thought it seemed to wink. Halt gestured, and they all proceeded forward through the foliage. They emerged out into a new clearing where a farmhouse was situated overlooking the countryside. Though it was lit up with electric lights of its own, this was not what they had been seeing. Off on the horizon, the red light burst into multiple smaller lights that moved in formation. At this point, all they could do was watch. The light was so bright that when they trained their scopes on it, it blew out the sensor, creating an eerie black spot in the middle of the red dot. It truly did look like a blinking eye. Halt became even more incredulous. He said, this is unreal. Then he commented as he saw something new. He spoke into his tape recorder saying, now we're observing what appears to be a beam coming down to the ground. It was as if the red light was casting a search beam down on the countryside. What it was searching for was anyone's guess. The men held their position, watching in awe as the red light wove through the sky. Occasionally, it would shoot beams down toward the earth or white bits of lights would break off. By 4 a.m., Halt decided they had seen enough. It was time to go back to base and report that they had spotted a UFO. Next, we'll follow Halt as he shares his story and is promptly silenced.
Now, back to our story. On the morning of December 28, 1980, Colonel Charles Halt and dozens of men from Woodbridge Royal Air Force Base witnessed a UFO in the woods outside the facility. Now, on December 29, 1980, agents from OSI, the Air Force Office of Special Investigations, arrived to question the men. The investigators had jurisdiction across the military and could even arrest high-ranking members. All were apprehensive as they went in for questioning with these secretive, intense agents. Sergeant Penniston was the first to see the spacecraft and had secretly touched it, though he had yet to mention that last part to anyone. The agents wanted to talk to him first. Penniston's memories of his interrogation by OSI are spotty at best. Looking back, he believes he was injected with sodium pentothal, known as truth serum. He believes he revealed everything to them, telling the whole story of the strange alien ship. Strangest of all, he seems to recall that the OSI agents responded with indifference. It was as if the revelation of the alien ship was no surprise to them. They acted like they had heard of it before. In a different room, Airman First Class Edward Cabanseg, who had driven Burroughs and Penniston out to the forest, was handed a pre-written statement and told to sign it. It said they had seen a light from a nearby lighthouse, nothing more. When he began to object, the OSI agents simply leaned in, warning, bullets are cheap. Burroughs claims to have been given a similar treatment, Halt, for his part, was treated more gently, likely due to his rank. He was debriefed, allowing him to provide his version of events. It was implied, however, that talking about the UFO would be bad for his career. These debriefings left the witnesses with more questions than answers. Did the government know more about the aliens? Or did they know nothing and just wanted to keep the men from embarrassing the armed forces by claiming they saw UFOs? Halt just couldn't see the wisdom in ignoring the phenomenal things he had witnessed. If the U.S. wouldn't listen to him, maybe the British government would. He decided to craft a memo detailing the events of the last few days. It was matter-of-fact, true to military form. He began by describing the strange glowing object that Penniston had seen, though at this point, Penniston still hadn't shared many details. The middle section of the memo discusses the circular impressions in the ground and the radiation readings. Finally, Halt writes about his own experience discussing the pulsing red light and its erratic behavior. He mentions the pieces falling off of it, the shaft of light beaming down from it, everything. And that's it. The memo is all description, no analysis. As a result, it doesn't prompt a lot of action. It doesn't even explicitly mention UFOs, just strange lights. After he submitted the memo in January 1981, Halt received no reply, which is perhaps unsurprising. What were the British supposed to do with this information? Some lights in the sky didn't seem like a national emergency. Meanwhile, Sergeant Penniston returned to his security duties. However, he couldn't get his mind off of what he saw. There was something in the woods. He was sure of it. 
the craft he touched was incredible. The more he thought about it, the more he was sure it couldn't have been made by the Air Force. The small size, the lack of sound, and the way it maneuvered through the forest all suggested it wasn't powered by a traditional afterburning engine. Something that gave off no heat, no sound, and that hovered rather than glided couldn't even be powered by jet fuel. He didn't believe in aliens, but he had to admit that whatever he saw wasn't human. Or, at the very least, it wasn't American. If nothing else, he had his photos. Throughout the sighting, Penniston had been sure to grab as many stills as he could. He immediately delivered the film to the base photo lab for development. This, of course, was a mistake. When he went to pick up the photos in the first week of January, he was met with devastating news. All of the photos turned out white. It was as if they had all been completely overexposed. Was this due to the luminous quality of the UFO, or was something more sinister at play? Penniston couldn't shake the feeling that OSI had intervened and purposefully ruined his film. This wasn't a solo occurrence either. Many of the men in Halt's group from the second sighting reported that their film turned out overexposed as well. It seemed the Air Force would do whatever they could to keep this story under wraps. The question still remained. Were they simply embarrassed by their men claiming they saw UFOs? Or was there a conspiracy behind it all? Airman John Burroughs had resumed his regular patrol the first week in January when he saw something that only deepened his suspicions. As he walked past Woodbridge Forest, he was surprised to see individuals moving among the trees. They carried equipment with them, though he couldn't tell what it was. Even stranger, they weren't wearing any uniforms. He thought that perhaps the Air Force was investigating the site again, but these seemed like civilians. He pulled out his radio, calling it in. After a moment, he got his response. The soldier on the other end of the radio said that the people in the forest were just hired workers. When Burroughs asked what they were hired to do, the response was electronics work. Hard to imagine what kind of electronics maintenance could be performed in the middle of a forest. Once again, the men were left to wonder, did the Air Force know more than it was letting on? Had they sent people into the forest to cover up any evidence of the UFO? If that was the case, then it was an issue that was too big for any one witness to bring to light. Halt's memo had gone unheeded. Everyone else had been told to keep quiet. Their story would fade into the background of base life, going unnoticed by the public at large. At the time, few could have imagined that in just a few years, the Rendlesham incident would become as famous as Roswell. Nearly three years later, on October 2nd, 1983, the front page of News of the World ran a story that few could believe. The headline? UFO lands in Suffolk. And that's official. At first glance, the story seemed easy to dismiss. The paper itself was a tabloid known as the News of the Screws because it often covered sex scandals. But there was more to this particular tabloid than first met the eye. 
For one, the story of the UFO landing came from a witness. U.S. Airman Larry Warren, using the pseudonym Art Wallace, revealed that not only had he seen a UFO in Woodbridge Forest on December 26, 1980, but that he had seen aliens as well. On top of that, there was an official U.S. Air Force memo to back up his claims. A Freedom of Information Act request led to the HALT memo being made public. The world was about to be set on fire with this sensational evidence. Were UFOs real? Would the Rendlesham incident finally prove it? With every UFO story, there are witnesses and there are skeptics. The witnesses were about to have their say, but after that, a man named Ian Ridpath would set out to prove them wrong. He would claim that the whole thing could be explained away with a meteor, rabbits, and a lighthouse. Next week, we'll learn how Penniston, Halt, and others responded to these theories. And we'll follow Penniston as he goes to great lengths to prove his story. When he turns to hypnosis in 1994, he discovers the most surprising information of all. What happened to him during his 45 minutes of lost time. Thanks for listening to our first episode on the Rendlesham Incident. You can find all previous episodes of Extraterrestrial, as well as all of ParCast's other shows on Spotify and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. New episodes come out every Tuesday. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Extraterrestrial was created by Max Cutler. It's a production of Cutler Media and part of the ParCast Network. It's produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Extraterrestrial was written by Greg Castro and stars Bill Thomas and Tim Johnson.